if you look at a professional versus an amateur, an amateur believes that feeling generates action, whereas a professional knows that action generates feeling. So the equation's flipped. And when you really, really embrace that, when you really ask yourself, where am I showing up as a pro in life? And where am I showing up as an amateur? You know, really think about it. Um, and if you could start showing up, if you can turn pro in life, in all the dimensions of life, on the health front, on the, on the wealth front, on the work front, you know, on the home front, and have your actions generate the feelings that you're after, uh, commit to the protocol, whether you feel like it or not, um, everything changes. I mean, do you know how many times I wake up every morning feeling like I want to do what I have in front of me that day? Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with a peak performance CEO coach, former Skype leader and McKinsey & Co. consultant, Chilanjo co-founder and author of The Three Alarms. He studied philosophy, history and literature from KU Levin, has a Bachelor of Applied Science and Finance from the University of Illinois, is a certified High Performance Institute coach and has served an apprenticeship under Stanford University Behavior Design Lab Professor B.J. Foggs. His career has included being a consultant at McKinsey & Co., Head of Business Development Global E-Commerce at Skype, Co-Founder and CEO at Chilando, Chairperson of the Supper Club and member of Young Presidents Organization. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a guest judge on The Apprentice, motivational speaker, a CEO of the year, and described as one of Britain's most disruptive entrepreneurs by The Telegraph, Eric Partaker. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. I'm not, uh, after an intro like that, I feel like we need to tone things down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here, though, and hopefully we can create some, some nuggets for the listeners. So. Yeah, it's going to be good. So you're currently living in London, but you know, I'm curious, where did you grow up and, and what really sparked your curiosity as a child? Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, uh, definitely an international mutt. Um, so I, um, I'm half Norwegian, half American. Uh, left Norway when I was about five, grew up in Chicago for the most part. And um, <clears throat> have done a, you know, a lot of uh, quite random different things, you know, looking back, you know, as you've mentioned in the intro from consulting to uh, helping scale up uh, Skype before we sold it to eBay, to restaurants, now peak performance. The, the common thread throughout it all was um, growing up, I remember coming across some of Abraham Maslow's research and the whole hierarchy of needs and that our, you know, our path to deepest fulfillment lies in reaching our fullest potential. and. The statistic that shocked me was that only 2% of people in his estimation uh, reached their full potential, became all that they're capable of, 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 of being. 
and meaning that 98% of people, you know, lived a life, you know, perhaps feeling, you know, overwhelmed or frustrated or just disappointed, regretful. And that sparked an idea. What if I could solve the world's biggest problem? Because if 98% of people are leaving something on the table, to me, that must be the world's biggest problem. <laughs> So, so, um, so it, it just sparked this whole passion around peak performance and this idea of how can I widen that pie slice? You know, what would it mean to the world if it wasn't 2%, but 4% or 5 or 10%? Yeah. Yeah, I love that approach. Um, it, it's sort of, it's quite similar to when I was young, you know, I always had this question from, from being a, a young child, you know, how can, you know, why aren't people healthier, hungry, uh, sorry, healthier, happier and hungrier for success? And that was my, the question that's always sat with me. How can I help people be healthier, happier, and hungrier for success? And so it's, it's, it's quite a line there, which is really interesting. Yeah. So for you, obviously, reading, around, uh, reading about Maslow's work there and, and around peak performance, you know, for you, was there something that you really shined in as a, as a teenager or as a youngster um, that you tended to perform really well at? Um. <clears throat> Quite the contrary. Um, I uh, found that I was always struggling to, at best, be second best. You know, so um, I worked worked my tail off trying to get to the top of my class, and I think I got to like, you know, the number ten slot in a small uh, high school. Um, worked my tail off to get onto the basketball team. Got onto the team, but never played a game. <laughs> You know? yeah. So, uh, so I was, I was constantly trying really, really hard and, um, not really seeing the results. And, um, and that was really frustrating. So, so I, I, I would say I had, um, a lot of frustration in me and a lot of fear that I was going to end up in that 98%. And that kind of guided, um, you know, that was a dominant feeling for the, the whole first half of my you know, career, definitely my, my youth and the whole first half of my career. So obviously you had a lot of drive, right? And, and drive is probably one of the key indicators of success in, in anything in life. And so, yes, you may not have succeeded at, at those things at a younger age, but that constant drive, that constant pursuit of not wanting to be in that 98% has, has obviously really helped you in life. Were there any sort of key role models uh, around that time that, that had a major influence on shaping who you are today? I've always, um, I, th there's been a handful of, um, of role models, you know, for sure. But you know, I, I would say it was less a key, key person and it was more a key event. So, um, so, and, and, and for me, if I could tell a quick story, it would, it would go, it would take us back um, 10 years. And, um, and I've had this life of, you know, working hundred hour weeks at McKinsey, um, you know, trying to, you know, help build up Skype and, um, and my own businesses. And <clears throat> so I, I board a, a flight back to London and, um, and shortly, you know, after the cabin doors close, I can sense something's not right. And after the plane reaches cruising altitude, you know, I have a lot of pressure in my chest, which you know, becomes pain and goes down left shoulder, left arm. And, uh, and I said to you know, my colleague next to me, can you, can you feel my left arm? Because this is starting to freak me out a bit. And, um, and he looked at me uh, with clearly shocked look in his eyes because he said, you know, it feels like your arm's been hanging in a meat locker. 
Um, and that's what I had felt too, that it was just ice cold. Um, <clears throat> Peng continues, um, he grabs the attention of a stewardess who asks if there's a doctor on board. And luckily for me, there was one doctor rushes over, takes my vital signs and says, we need to land the plane immediately. I think he's having a heart attack. And, um, and you know, the descent felt like an eternity. Um, we finally uh, touched down in an, in an airport um, that they had shut down for the emergency landing in, in a small town in France and took me into uh, a waiting ambulance that was on the, on the runway. They administered nitrates right away to open up, uh, you know, arteries, increase blood flow to the heart, and um, and I remember looking up into the eyes of the French paramedic. Uh, we were flying over France at the time, um, looking down at me, and I just said, "Please don't let me die. I have a five-year-old son." And the the next, you know, I mean, think about it this way: when <laughs> when you think it's it's game over, it's lights out. Uh, you certainly wouldn't be saying, you know, please don't let me die. I have to, you know, clear my inbox. <laughs> so, so the next more, so that moment, you know, rather than a person, I would say it was that moment because I woke up the next day realizing that this whole pursuit of realizing my full potential that it was um, I was doing it in the wrong way. So it was coming at I, I was sacrificing, you know, my health and my relationships you know, on the altar of success here. And, 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 and I was about to be the ultimate sacrifice, you know, my life. So, so that, that really sparked a, a whole change, you know, how do I perform at a peak level, but do so without sacrificing, you know, my health and relationships. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a big realization and it, you know, it normally takes something, as you say, hopefully not as near death as that one, but um, you know, it takes, it takes normally a, a disruption in people's lives um, with a, a shock for them to go, hey, you know what, there, there's more to working than uh, 100 hours a week type thing as well. And I had something quite similar. So um, our hearts, <laughs> we, we seem to have a, a few things here already lining up in this session, which is quite interesting. Uh, let, let's, uh, and I'll, I want to come, like, well, I'm going to tie into your story just there a little bit. We'll go back just a step. So you end up working in a career at McKinsey and co as a consultant, you know, what, what got you to that space? Because it is generally those companies that are those consultancy companies generally tend to, um, have cultures of working big hours. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, it, I guess it goes back to your drive point. So, um, I was in a management and organizational behavior class. Um, at University of Illinois. And the only reason I took this class is because the professor was a visiting professor from Stanford University. And I thought this will be my only chance to receive kind of enlightenment, if you will, from someone uh, you know, at that level. So I took the class for that reason. And, um, and I remember a particular lecture when he said, if anybody in the room were to get a job at the company that I'm about to profile next, I'll fall out of my chair. And that definitely sparked the competitive spirit. So I kind of perked <laughs> up and the company that he profiled next was McKinsey. And, uh, you know, he talked about it as, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the gold standard of consulting and all of that and um, uh, strategy consulting at least. And, um, um, and I, I went up to him afterwards and I said, uh, you know, I'm going to get a job there. And um, he said, well, what makes you think that? And I'm like, well, because it's a great place to work. You just said so yourself. 
Um, and um, so I met up with the, the professor a couple of times and and then I very strategically like lined everything up to get that job. So what I mean is, um, uh, so, uh, you know, a, a couple of things. One, um, I, I knew I had to beef up my, my resume or my CV, right, to, 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 to be a, you know, an applicant to uh, uh, have a decent chance there because McKinsey pretty much only focused on the Ivy League. So I wanted to kind of round myself out as much as possible. So I, I joined the finance club and, uh, and I remember in the very first meeting um, the, of the finance club at the University of Illinois, there was a field trip that they did every year for prospective employers. And the president of the club said, who would like to organize this year's field trip? Boom, hand went up. <laughs> I said, I'll do it. And then later that afternoon on the phone with McKinsey in Chicago's office saying, I'd like to organize a field trip to your office. They said, yeah, that's no problem. Um, through that, I was able to meet the recruiter, head recruiter in person. And then uh, the second thing I did was um, I networked my way to the University of Chicago, which has a great MBA program, um, and found the president of a group called the, uh, the president of the Management Consulting Club at the University of Chicago. So trying to help the graduates, obviously, land gigs at places like McKinsey. And, um, and I met up with him and some of the club members and basically started to practice case interviews with those club members, which is you know the, the interview style that they do at McKinsey. So I must have practiced about 30 case interviews before I ever even started the interview process with McKinsey. And when I sent you know, the resume in, the recruiter obviously recognized me. Um, uh, that got me into the interview process. All the interview practice helped me land the gig. And um, yeah, there was about 2,000 applicants for 22 positions. And um, I was one of two that wasn't from an Ivy League school to, to land the job. And, um, and yeah, the ultimate motivation, though, was that I thought of McKinsey. You know, I didn't come from, nobody went to university in my family. I was the first to go to you know, university and, um, and, you know, the school I went to was good. It wasn't great. And so I thought of McKinsey as, uh, like an equalizer, like something where if I could get that as my first kind of stepping stone career wise, it would level the playing field with those that maybe had a more pr privileged upbringing and, and background. Hmm. Yeah. So some road drive there. And I love, I just love the story behind how, how you actually got the job and, you know, like, you know, people just think sometimes that they're entitled to go to a university or entitled to get a job somewhere. Um, but you know what, the ones that turn up, you know, successful are the ones that really put the effort in and go the extra mile and, and are constantly being curious around how they can actually make something happen. So yeah, very cool. Very, very like that. And, and yeah. so working at McKinsey & Co, obviously big company, um, you know, obviously well-recognized worldwide in strategy, et cetera. You know, what were the biggest lessons you learned working there that helped you, uh, in, you know, as you went into you know, working with Skype and then having your own businesses? Um, probably the, the biggest lesson, um, and then of course, how I reacted to this actually wasn't very healthy. Um, uh, there, there would have definitely been a better way of reacting to it. But the biggest lesson was um, you got to stay on top of your game. I mean, you know, McKinsey is a, 
uh, little did I know that I had entered, you know, a a culture where they you know they regularly call the the bottom of the lineup, um, you know, to keep the roster as kind of as as healthy and as uh, you know strong, you know, hard hitting as possible. And um, and it's a it's a very performance driven environment. Um, and now I was. Um, I suddenly felt at the bottom of the pile again, you know, so I felt at the top of the pile relative to my university when I got the job. And suddenly when I was, you know, behind those closed doors, I was like, wow, I got to, you know, these people are really bright. <laughs> I remember thinking, I remember one guy in particular, uh, he was literally a former rocket scientist, you know, so the whole, the whole, well, you know, it's not like you need to be a rocket scientist. Well, well, he was a rocket scientist, <laughs> you know. Um, and, you know, former NASA, you know, propulsion, you know, uh, engineer. And uh, you know, a lot of people like that, you know, half the people weren't even from business, uh, from the world of business. They were, uh, you know, degrees in biochemistry or, or you know, physics. And, and um, so it really, um, it really drove home the point to me that, um, that performing at a peak, realizing your full potential—it's—it's never—it's not like the two percent who realize their full potential have ever arrived. It's that they realize that reaching your full potential is a continuous commitment to the path. You know, you're, you're on the path of mastery, and and you're constantly trying to improve. And it was an absolute necessity to kind of do that and have that mindset to kind of stay afloat at McKinsey. Mm. And so you move out of McKinsey and you end up at, at Skype and, and, you know, which, which at its time, you know, in the early days was really the predominant video communication tool. It, it was what everyone used to communicate outside of a phone. Um, and, and so what, how did you land that job in and tell us a little bit around what you were doing there? Yeah, it's uh, it's these are great questions, really good questions actually, because they're they're um, you know they're revealing uh, you know a common thread here that doesn't that doesn't really uh, typically show up you know on, on on these on the in these interviews. So same drill. Um, I I first approached uh, so I wanted to work at I was using Skype um, earlier than most, given its Scandinavian origins. So I. I looked at that and I thought this is going to be massive. I, I just knew that it was going to be big. I could recognize the opportunity in it. And for me, it wasn't the excitement of using it as a piece of software. I thought I need to be part of this because this is, this is going to be revolutionary. I thought, um, and, uh, so I, I sent in, sent in a letter, um, to Skype, uh, with my, you know, resume, um, asking uh, to join the team, essentially. There was no job role that they were looking for that had a business angle to it. Everything on the website was all engineering, you know, software related. And I got rejected. They said, no, we're not looking for anybody with business expertise. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's more all, it's all tech, essentially. So I waited three months and then I sent in a cover letter again um, with, um, with my resume and, um, and that time, uh, the recruiter uh, said, okay, well, why don't you come in for, a, um, for an interview? And when I got there on the interview, she's like, she's like, you know, your persistence is, 
is definitely noteworthy. Um, and she's like, but also the date of your cover letter. She's like, December 25th? Come on. And, and I hadn't even realized that I'd <laughs> written that cover letter on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> that's how like i was like i'm gonna get the job <laughs> you know? so um so i had an interview with uh you know another person there and um and uh, i think one of the key things that helped me land the job was they they asked um uh, well what do i think of their strategy and um, i had basically before the interview i had gathered all their press releases and kind of created a matrix of what verticals they were going after tech-wise by, by geography. And then I could see, you know, the dots in the matrix basically, which, you know, had they covered, okay, they have mobile, mobile, you know, covered in, in, uh, in you know, South Korea, uh, but not in uh, China, for example, or, you know, they have, they've done some, you know, deals with some, you know, ISPs and, in in holland but not in spain for example so i was able to uh, you see a lot of the missing holes and what appeared to be their strategy which was you know dominate you know x verticals by y geographies and um and so i talked about that quite a lot in the interview and um and i think they, they thought that was quite insightful and um and then that um you know led to the um the, the business development role and um and helping um you know then uh, scale you know the company we we grew from 30 to 500 people in a space of a couple of years and we ended up having a, a sale to ebay for four billion dollars and um and one of the i think one of the big elements to all that that all happening was was our identity so our our tagline at the time was the whole world can talk for free. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, GE become number one or number two in any market that we operate in. Um, it wasn't self-serving at all. It was about you know, doing the world some good. And that kind of revolutionary spirit and approach, I think had a really positive impact on both everyone in the company and people outside the company as well. So mm. it's, it's quite fascinating. And obviously, it's gone on to bigger things and now it's got uh, a lot of competition in the marketplace as well, which has been fascinating to see who is and isn't using different types of video conference technology during COVID. And um, yeah. I'm sure we'll see a real strong resurrection of Skype um, in the future. Um, yeah. And, and, and to be clear, this, I mean, we're going back more than 15 years. So this is like at that very early days of skype this is around 2003 four five you know those years so yeah wow well, yeah it's great it's great um great foresight you know from your from your perspective to be able to see where a company is going to go and, and obviously you talk about it being sold for four billion dollars which is you know not chump change at all um you know, in, yeah in the, in the no it's um it isn't <laughs> so yeah. So you so you go from you know working for other companies and then you you find yourself owning your own business. Um, you know what, what was the catalyst to starting a Mexican restaurant? Yeah, so um, another great question. Um, so after the eBay transaction, shortly after that, I started to think about well, what should I do next? Um, and 
I was missing Mexican food, having grown up on it in Chicago. Um, you know, if you try to grow up in Chicago, uh, it's, well, yeah, you, you have to love Mexican food um, or else you're going to starve or have no friends. <laughs> so, um, so, so that was kind of in my blood, so to speak. And, um, and I noticed that there was nobody doing it. And, you know, quick service, you know, Mexican in London. And, um, and I thought, well, why don't I apply the same core tenets that made Skype successful to the Mexican food arena? And the reason, you know, Skype, voice over IP had existed 10 years prior to Skype's arrival. So a decade it was in the market. So why did Skype suddenly take off? And it's because of two reasons. So number one, the product quality at the time was vastly superior to anything on the market. And number two, they wrapped it all up in a brand that people really loved, you know, as, as uh, um, captured in that phrase, right? The whole world can talk for free. So that, you know, it was a movement. It wasn't just a, a, a company. And so I thought, okay, I'll do the same. So let's, um, let's focus on incredible food quality. Um, so I ended up networking my way to two chefs who at the time were literally working at the world's number one and number two restaurants. So at the time, the two restaurants that were constantly trading spots for number one and number two were the Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck. And there was uh, another restaurant in Spain called El Bulli. And, um, and so we started with the vision of, well, what would a 100 pound burrito taste and look like? And let's chisel it down from that point to fit the economics of the business that we were building rather than starting with, you know, as cheaply as possible. Hmm. And, um, and then brand wise, um, you know, I'm a big believer in being able to, you know, distill a brand in a single word or a mission. Uh, you know, Disney's all about happiness. Nike's all about competition. And so with the brand really focused on the one word distillation being vibrancy. And, and then with that as the DNA, it just informed everything. So we added an audition element to our interviews to uncover vibrant personalities. We, um, we had, uh, you know, vibrant, you know, interiors, uh, the food was, you know, boldly, vibrantly flavored. And, um, and those, all those ingredients came together to, you know, build what became an award-winning brand in the, in the Mexican food space. Yeah, that's cool. And, you know, vibrancy, I, I think that's such a, such a strong word that, you know, we don't often see in a company, you know, not, not too many of them would choose something like that, you know, as you, you talked about their Nike with competition, et cetera. So, um, you know, people talk about professionalism or integrity, but you've gone for vibrancy, which I think is, you know, when I had a look at the, uh, the company and things like that, you could really see that, um, it just stood out like a sore farm, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So we're obviously, you know, you know, for those people listening and obviously for myself, we're hearing a common thread around performance. And, and I think when we look at performance in life, it's not, it doesn't always come from those that are most talented. It's generally from those that are below it, that have that drive to want to pursue it and get there. So in your mind, what do you think stops people fulfilling their potential? I think the number one thing the number one thing that stops people from fulfilling their, their, their full potential is, um, 
a, uh, a lack of adherence. Because what I mean by that is that um, if you want to lose weight, you could you could figure you could find a, a ten different diet plans to help you lose weight. Um, if you want to improve your leadership skills, you can find you know ten different programs that can help you do that. Um, if you want to improve your marriage, you could find ten different books, therapists, counselors, you know, you name it. Uh, the problem is not finding the best plan. The problem is that people don't realize that the best plan is simply the one that you stick to. Um, and if you really, you know, adhere, right? It's like when, when people fail their, for example, their health goals, it's because at some point they stopped exercising. It's at some point they stopped sticking to the diet. It's at some point because they started to sacrifice their sleep. Um, and, and, and if people, you know, if you just, if you just, you know, have that mentality of, um, and this is a segue, I think, to the second thing, which is, you know, a professional versus an amateur. Um, and all of this, by the way, I, I you know, I, I go into in, in, um, in my book recently, you know, that I wrote the, the, the three alarms, but, um, if, if you look at a professional versus an amateur, so an amateur is someone who needs to feel like taking action, um, you know, in order to act, they need to feel like it. Um, a professional takes action whether they feel like it or not. Or said another way, you know, an amateur believes that feeling generates action, whereas a professional knows that action generates feeling. So the equation's flipped. And when you really, really embrace that, when you really ask yourself, where am I showing up as a pro in life? And where am I showing up as an amateur? You know, really think about it. Um, and if you could start showing up, if you can turn pro in life in all the dimensions of life on the health front, on the, on the wealth front, on the work front, you know, on the home front and have your actions generate the feelings that you're after, uh, commit to the protocol, whether you feel like it or not, um, everything changes. I mean, do you know how many times I wake up every morning feeling like I want to do what I have in front of me that day? A minority of the time. But yeah. I've just conditioned myself to know that those feelings of not feeling like doing something, that's all BS. You know, just ignore that. Get started and those feelings just completely fade and disappear. Yeah, I know being an athlete, I we always had the 15-minute rule. So it didn't matter how how bad you felt, or good you felt, you always your litmus test was 15 minutes. So it would either wake you up or you'd realize, uh, no, hang on, you actually need to rest because you're not in a good spot. You, you, you're actually going to do worse than, than good here. Um, yeah. But it's about showing up, right? It's about getting up there. Um, when, when things aren't quite happening in life or, or, the, or the inner voice is telling you something a bit different, you've got to overcome that. And, and that's yeah. what, as you say, pros do far better than the amateurs is they're able to show up and and not to show up, but actually get up and do it. Yeah. I think it's really... And all of that's trainable, right? It's, yeah. um, that's not how I used to think. I used to be um, you know, ruled by my feeling I needed to do everything. Um, but I've trained myself to, to think you know, in this way. Mm. And so you, you've done quite a bit of work now in peak performance, and obviously you've been exposed to that in the working world as both someone working for 
uh, a big corporation um, with more of a startup and then and then owning your own business as well you you're now focused on helping other people and you talked about your book there the 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 three alarms what are the three alarms and and what initiated those three alarms yeah so the three alarms are simply three alarms that are on my phone that go off every single day um uh, what I've done is I've segmented my day into three chunks and I've chosen a best self identity, me at my best, the champion version of me, not the perfect, but you know, me at my best that I use to bring some intentionality into those segments of the day. And I use the set these up as alarms on my phone to kind of trigger that intentionality. So at 6.30 a.m., the first alarm goes off and it says world fitness champion because that's who shows up in the gym. Um, that's who walks through the gym doors. And when I'm on the eighth repetition and not sure if I'll get to the 10th, the little voice in my head kicks in and says, and watch what Eric's about to do next. This is where the best separate themselves from the rest, right? <laughs> and, um, and then I had the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th for good measure. Why? Because champions do more, of course. Um, and, um, uh, and then at 9am, the second alarm goes off when I was, you know, a CEO, it said world's best CEO. These days it says world's best coach. And it's just, again, to prompt some intentionality there. How, how would that version of me show up in the world? Um, you know, how decisive, inspiring and reliable do I need to be for, for my clients, you know, for the, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs, the leaders that I help. And then the, the game changing alarm for me is at 6.30 PM and it says world's best husband and father, just to prompt a question, how would the world's best husband and father walk through that door right now? And that kind of intentionality, you know, when you have, if you don't have anything to aim for, you have nothing to measure against. If you have something to aim for, you can measure against it and you don't become perfect, but when you screw up, it becomes more painfully obvious. And that's good because you course correct more quickly. You apologize more quickly. You get things back together more quickly. And also when you operate in a way that's incongruence with one of those identities, you feel pretty damn good about it because you're like, yeah, that's me. That's me at my best. Um, so those are the three alarms. Um, and, and you know, it's really about recognizing that a life well lived is a life that is balanced across those three critical domains, you know, your, your health, uh, your work and your relationships. And then, um, the thing that I add to it in the book is, okay. So if, if peak, if we want to gain entry to the 2% club, if peak performance is our path to gain entry to that plug, uh, that, you know, that, 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 that club, and if we want to re realize our full potential in those three domains of, you know, health, I call it wealth rather than work, because I think of wealth as both making the money and investing the money. So health, wealth, and relationships, we want to, we, that's a life well lived, realizing your full potential feeling, feeling like you've gained entry into the 2% club in each of those three domains is a life well lived. Now our levers, our tools to do that, um, relate to what I call in the book IPA. So like the beer, but better for you. <laughs> um, so um, your identity, productivity, and anti-fragility. So 
um, very, just very quickly about those. So identity is just defining well, what does best look like for you? So that's, a, for example, those three alarms, having a best self-identity in each of the three domains and a way to trigger that identity. Um, the productivity, why productivity? And, and the reason you have to start with identity is you have no chance to become a better person in the future if you continue to be the person you've always been, right? So you have to change. Um, and the reason for productivity is because it's all about action these days. Knowledge is cheap. So you have to optimize yourself for action. You have to continually act. And the reason for anti-fragility, well, you know, my favorite quote, Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, so we can be operating from the vantage point of our best self or best selves. We can be optimizing ourselves for action. You know, procrastination becomes a, you know, a figment of the past. Um, but then things will still not go to plan. And actually, you can be guaranteed they won't go to plan. And the question is, well, how do you react when things get chaotic? Um, because the anti-fragile person actually becomes stronger in those situations, you know, that are beyond resilience. They don't just absorb shock and return to the, the same. They absorb the shock and they become stronger as a result of it. And, um, and I think that's really missing and needed in, in the world is um, having that anti-fragile courage and confidence to, to stay the course and, you know, turn chaos into strength. Yes, yeah, so I'm really curious around the anti-fragility. So can you enlighten us a little bit more around what are some signs that uh, maybe some signs first that we can understand that we're not being an anti-fragile sort of state? And then how do we switch ourselves into it? Right. Yeah. So, um, so first is the, the common view of stress is not an anti-fragile view of stress. Um, so, uh, the book by Kelly McGonigal, uh, upside of stress, she talks about three groups of people in the book. So first group lives a stress-free life. Second group has stressful life, but views it positively. Third group, stressful life, views it negatively. So the question is which group lives the longest? And it ends up being the second group. So the group that has a stressful life, but views it positively outlives the stress-free group. Um, so what's very enlightening about that is that stress actually isn't something we should, you know, full stop seek to minimize or avoid. It's actually something which makes us stronger. Um, you know, we can turn stress into strength. That's, that's the anti-fragile attitude and uh, by reframing it. And once you reframe it, all reframing is doing is taking what you already recognize with regards to stress in terms of physical training and applying that to your mind. So nobody goes to the gym without the intent to stress their body to become stronger as a result. So you pick up, but you stress a muscle causes it to grow, right? If I expose my body to germs and bacteria, it's going to build the immune system. Um, you know, exposure to UV radiation in small doses actually generates vitamin D and repairs tissues in the body. So our bodies are perfect temples of anti-fragility. They constantly alchemize challenge into growth, stress into strength. So all we need to do first step is to recognize that we're already anti-fragile physically, and we just need to bring that up into our heads mentally. 
And once you do that, then life for me becomes one big training camp where it's a mental gym. So, you know, I get presented with dumbbells, so to speak, throughout the course of my day nonstop. You know, a situation that triggers me is, is nothing more than the personal trainer in the gym presenting me a dumbbell. Here, here, Eric, can you, would you like to curl this? Now I can run away from the weight rack and run out of the gym. Uh, I won't become stronger or I can step into whatever that thing is in the course of my day, accept it, embrace it, curl it, complete the repetition and I'll become stronger as a result. So what I mean is like every, every, you know, frustration, disappointment, um, uh, you know, adversity that you face, all of these just become opportunities to strengthen yourself. And, um, and, you know, I, I kind of look at these various things that happened in, during the course of the day. And, and I just say to myself, yeah, bring it on. Let's step into it. That's, that's how I become stronger. So it starts there first and foremost, um, in the mind. So with your peak performance, you, you've um, done some work with High Performance Institute and, and obviously with Stanford University Behavior Design, Design Lab Professor BJ Fox. So for you working with people that are consistently studying what performance is, uh, deciding around behavior and how we can be more effective through that, what you know, being in that environment, how did that really shape you as a peak performance coach? It made me realize that um, a couple of things. So one, you know, there's there's a there's a handful of habits or ways of being that um, are trainable, learnable, that are practiced by you know the world's you know best, um, and that everyone has access to and can learn. Um, so that, you know, point number one, that you can, you can close that gap between your current and best self by simply wanting to do it and then applying yourself. It's not reserved for the elite. It's not reserved for the genetically superior. It's on the table for everyone. Um, and then the second thing uh, that I learned, especially, um, you know, with Professor BJ Fogg's work is that we really want to tap into the whole science of habit formation. And we really want to create as many positive habits in our lives as possible and get rid of as many negative as possible. The whole trajectory of your life or even your performance in business, whether it's positive, neutral, or negative will ultimately be linked to, well, how many positive algorithms or habits do you have running in your life? You know, what are the weighting of those habits? Um, and then how good are you, are, are you at cutting the, you know, the bad ones out? So, yeah, I, I would say those, those two things in particular from the, the coaching, you know, certifications and apprenticeships, um, around that, you know, there's a core set of things that everyone can learn. And one of the, the smartest things you can do is try to internalize those learnings by creating as many good habits as possible and getting rid of as many bad as possible. So writing a book is can be quite a revelation for people as well. So what was the biggest thing you learned in writing the book, The Three Alarms, that you didn't realize before you started? Like so many other, well, pretty pretty similar to every step in my life that on just 
there was a fear door there um, with writing a book. I I had thought that you know just just as I had originally perceived McKinsey to be and Skype to be and starting my own business to be that doing these things was reserved for other people that I didn't have what it takes right and every single time I've felt this I've now realized that that's just a a fear door you know and if you just step through that door your infinite pot potential lies on the other side and um and what really helped me with the book writing process was having a, you know, a coach. So I had, I had a coach there who, you know, helped me with the writing of the book and helped me think about it structurally and, um, you know, think about it, you know, from, you know, what, what should we be writing? What shouldn't we write? And, and the beautiful part of the whole process is that as I went through it all and spent more and more time at the keyboard writing, I realized that hang on, this isn't as, as hard as I had made it out to be, right? It's like anything else. You just got to apply yourself, try it and do it. And um, yeah, it just really opened up the, I guess the, you know, further opened, I guess the, the, the realization that, you know, anything's possible, really. Anything's possible. You just got to surround yourself with the right people, adhere to a plan and, um, and take a professional, you know, instead of an amateur, you know, mindset to how you show up on a daily basis. Uh, very good. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? The last time I did something for the first time. Definitely the, well, oh no. Um, so I am turning, so it would be earlier this month, or sorry, uh, last, last month. Um, so I have taken the book, The Three Alarms, and I'm just about to finish what I'm calling the Peak Performance Masters Program. And so it is a, um, it's a digital online course that, you know, an absolute like masterclass, you know, mastery level training and, and how to realize your full potential, you know, gain your entry to that 2% club again. Um, and I had never done something like this, you know, it has over 60 video lessons and interactive worksheets and, um, you know, a curated reading list and all of that. And, um, and I had seen other people do it but it's, it, it felt a little bit daunting to me, but, you know, best thing I could have done was uh, started to, to, to sell the program before I had even finished creating it. Right. <laughs> so, so that it was like, okay, I have to finish these final modules now because people have already started the training program. So it was, you know, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, that was um, never created a course like that before. And um, uh, it's been a real, real magical journey so far. Yeah, brilliant. You, what is the one question that you would love to solve? Back to the 2% versus the 98%. So how can we more rapidly get as many of the 98% over into the 2% club as possible? You know, how, how do we get people to realize their full potential? I think 
I mean, it's crazy. If it, if it two I think all the world's problems, if everyone was operating at their fullest potential, I, we, 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 we could do do anything, right? We could, we could solve anything. So that, that to me is a, is a noble quest to, to pursue. Yeah. We've got to, got to stop the world idling and get it moving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Great question. I think realizing that you've that you're 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 that you're showing up at your best, that you're not leaving, you know, anything on the table. Not that you're perfect, but that you're showing up at your best. Um, I have a simple calendar up on the wall. Every day I set my intention to do my best. And if I do my best in the context of that day, not, not necessarily did I execute my plan, but did I do my best in the context of that day? You know, I could have a flat tire, for example. Um, if I do my best, I give myself a W. If I don't do my best, then I give myself an L for learn. And it's just a simple game. You know, can I have six or less L's in a month? So 80% hit rate and doing my best and never two L's in a row. And, um, and if I can keep on that track to me, that would be equivalent to living an extraordinary life. It's a great, uh, performance tracking tool. So maybe will we see that in your, uh, peak performance mastery course? <laughs> it is, it is in there. Yeah. Brilliant. That's cool. Um, it's been great listening to you today and, you, uh, today and you've shared a lot of great nuggets along the way. Um, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, great. Yeah, so two things. So one, um, just as a, um, as a gift for um, everyone who's given uh, their time listening to this point in the show. So thank you. And uh, to return the favor, um, the three alarms, uh, I'm offering a free digital copy of the, the book, if you just head over to my website at Eric, Eric with a C E R I C partaker, like it sounds P A R T A K E R Eric partaker.com. You can pick up a free copy of the book and, um, yeah, the, the, the master's program will be up there at some point as well. And, and if you're an entrepreneur, you know, CEO or leader and, um, want to scale, not just your, your company, but also yourself, um, gain entry to that 2% club. I'd be happy to have a, a conversation as well um, about coaching and mentoring. And uh, that's also available. You know, just get in touch uh, via the website. Uh, very, very good. Uh, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and just really love delving into that. How can we expand the 2%? You know, there's that, let, let's, let's grow the performers in the world and let's get things moving rather than idling. You, your experiences along the way, and you shared those through your stories of, of how you um, pursued uh, things, even though it didn't come easy to you, that drive, that passion that you had to, uh, to achieve something, even though it didn't always come easy. Uh, I, I love the way that you were curious and, and you can see why you've been successful in life. It's around that curiosity to how do we learn and grow? How do we get to where we want to be? How do we set the intention of what we want to do. 
uh, is really, really um, pleasing to hear. And, you know, you've obviously got a real giving heart as well because you're out there and you want to make a difference to the world and you want to help people grow and be better people uh, in this world, not just in their work that they do, not just in themselves, but also with their relationships. So congratulations on what you've achieved so far. We look forward to seeing many great accomplishments in the future and all the best with your new book, uh, The Three Alarms. Eric, thank you very much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Craig. And thanks once again to everyone who's listened to this point. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a magnificent conversation with Eric Partaker. Three alarms to peak performance on the Active CEO podcast. Now, what do leadership and coaching have in common? Well, everything. And central to both is communication the number one skill in the world. When people ask me, have I missed coaching? I always respond with, I have never stopped. You know, leading a global team of talented people requires me to bring my best coaching skills every day. Why? Because individual talent is only as strong as team performance. Be an inspiring leader by coaching the best out of your people with team performance always being front and center of mind. Now, if you need help in learning how to be an effective coach as a leader, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can ensure that you stand out from the crowd. Thank you very, very much for listening to today's episode with Eric Partaker, and I'm sure you got some great gems out of it. I am Craig Johns. The, this is the Active CEO podcast with ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>